1991, a guy in Florida named Arnold Abbott started a charity to um, help the local homeless community. And they gave out blankets and shoes and soap and served uh, about a thousand meals per week. And they helped people find employment. And Arnold called the charity, Love Thy Neighbor. One day, a number of years after he had established this charity, he got a call from a woman in Michigan, and her name was Catherine Sims. And she ran a ministry there called Love Your Neighbor. And with that name, she sold t-shirts and bracelets and trinkets over a website and had somehow managed to trademark the name Love Your Neighbor. So she contacted Arnold Abbott and demanded that his homeless ministry, Love Thy Neighbor, cease and desist using that name, turn it over to her and turn over all future profits. This absurd kind of story is uh, the type of thing that you hear about on the NPR show, This American Life. And that's where I first heard this story. And in this episode, Ira Glass asked Catherine Sims' attorney, if the idea of the principle is that you treat your neighbor as you would be treated, the way that she would want to be treated is that he would give up the name? Why doesn't she just give up the name? It's a good question. Well, the attorney defending Catherine says she is a very religious woman following the precepts of Jesus Christ, trying to do God's work, but she has a lot to lose. And I don't think that any doctrine of biblical law requires people to give up something of value to avoid a conflict. And she used the trademark first. <laughs> We're looking at various prophetic books during Lent, and chapters 8 and 9 of Amos, really the entire book, the prophet is writing to people who are very outwardly religious and yet have no problem leaning on other people for what they think is rightfully theirs. He's writing to people with a, a sort of formalistic religion, a show religion, while God had designed Israel to be the bearer of his concerns and his love for the world, they see Israel in possessive and nationalistic terms. To them, being a part of God's people is this irrevocable status to be taken advantage of rather than a calling to pursue the demands of God's law and his concern for justice. Now, God has had enough with his people, Israel, claiming his name and yet acting in ways that are very different from the way that he has designed them to be. And in exasperation, he finally says to Amos to write to his people, the end has come upon my people. Oof. Maybe... God knows that this sounds rather severe, so he explains himself, and he details what's wrong in Israel, and he says, first of all, they are basically counterfeits. God impersonates their boredom during special times of, of worship. 
these festivals and seasons. And he says for them, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? What's happening is these people are showing up for their religious duties, but they're sort of looking at their watch the whole time. Business ceased during these festivals and it made participants nervous and twitchy. When can we get back to real life, to making money? Because that's what we trust in. Well, God says that he swears by the pride of Jacob that he will not forget. He will not forget his people serving two masters, which in fact becomes one master, the God of mammon. He swears by the pride of Jacob. You know, when when you swear an oath, you swear by something that's lasting. And ancient people would swear by mountains or stars, something that is fixed, something that is lasting. Now, God normally swears by himself because he's eternity itself. But he's done that twice already in Amos. So what does he choose instead? What does he look at and look around his creation for something unchanging and lasting besides himself? That unchanging thing, that lasting thing is human pride, the intractable heart of vanity in Israel. Now, God's being a bit sarcastic, right? He's being a bit ironic, like an exasperated parent. What he's saying is he's tried everything to gain Israel's loyalty, but even their religious duties, their devotional practices, they're done not out of love for him, but from a sort of bored self-interest and a misplaced national pride. God's people, first of all, are counterfeits, but secondly, he says that they're corrupt. Instead of being a model to the world of a nation caring for its poor and oppressed, like every other national economy, wealth flows upward by exploiting the poor. This is going on in Israel, just like in every other nation. The working poor was constantly going into debt to the rich in order to pay for even their basic necessities. He says that they are buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, something essential to everyday life. The needy are going into debt to the rich to afford these necessities. Israel is supposed to be the one place, isn't it, where the poor are honored and are taken care of rather than abandoned. It's supposed to be the one place where the alien flees for safety rather than goes to be exploited, where the oppressed seek to be restored. And Amos says Israel has become the opposite. And he sees in Israel not simply a lack of charity, but the presence of rank injustice. It's a determined refusal to be the type of people that God has called them to be, a refusal to act towards others like he's acted towards them. And what God is saying through Amos is that this invalidates their status as God's people. 
God is telling Israel that she has misunderstood his blessing, that he didn't call them out of Egypt and into the promised land to be comfortable so that they could grow old pondering their national exploits and identity. But he founded them so that the poor and the disenfranchised and the outcast would have a home, would have a place of belonging in God's name. They're counterfeit, they're corrupt, and also they're callous. These two words, poor and needy, in verse 4, one is what we would normally translate as economically poor, but the other is something closer to what we might call a wretch or maybe an outcast. The poor and the outcast are those Israel is called to serve and to care for. God is telling Amos that this is who I've called Israel to care for. And not only do you neglect the poor and the outcasts, but you oppress them. You make them serve you. You are callous to their plight. Now, in town is someone I believe Stephanie said last week in the prayer is a small church with a funny name. It's true. It's not a name that I would have chosen, but it does tell us something critical, something important about our calling. It's it's in our namesake and one that we need to wrestle with as we go through this time of transition. Why are we in town? Why are we in Portland? Why downtown? The cities as, we talk, cities, as we've talked about in the past, are where cultural elites congregate. This is no secret. But it's also where, where underdogs live. Cities are where the down and out, the weird, the addicted come, not only because in cities there are services for people like them, but because in cities there are people like them. Israel was meant to be a refuge for the poor and needy. And when an alien, a sojourner, a criminal would come into, particularly into refuge cities, but into Israel itself, they would find it to be a refuge. They would find it to be a gathering place where there were communities of the poor and needy that had come to Israel to benefit from God's promises. God advantaged Israel, you see, so that it could advantage others, especially the down and the outcast, who could still find in Israel not only the resources they they lacked, but also the embrace of a loving community that included them and people like them into the very embrace of God. And as we consider our future continue on, cease operations at some point, or partner. We must remember, friends, that we're not merely contemplating finances. We're not merely talking about numbers and data, institutional realities, but we're considering how we can be a home in the future and a refuge for the disadvantaged, for the poor, for the needy for the outcast. 
Is that why we are in town? Well, God says that Israel has become counterfeits. They've become corrupt. They've become callous. What binds all of these words together besides them starting with the letter C is the same root sin. It's an over-concern with and an overconfidence in the self. In verse 10 of chapter 9, God says, All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say what? Disaster will not overtake or meet us. These are the real sinners in the community of God. Not the usual suspects, the aliens, the foreigners, the prostitutes, the the morally bankrupt. But those instead who claim the name of God but are overconfident in their own control over life who bear God's name and still choose to trample on the needy and do away with the poor of the land. In verse 7, God asks, are, your, are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? That is Israel's enemies. You've become just like the people that you hate. But even in God's anger, his justified anger, he can't turn his back upon his beloved. He hints at this in verse 8, yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. Now, this is just a hint. It's mildly comforting. I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob. But just four verses later, God makes this bold promise of not only refraining from destroying them, but offering salvation. That seems to say that for all the talk of judgment that is rightly deserved, that mere punishment, punitive measures will never solve the root problem. Like any good parent, God realizes that punitive measures have limited effectiveness. And he concludes that what Israel needs is in fact what the whole world needs. It isn't the purification of violence, but it is a restoration of love. It is a restoration of his purposes for Israel and for the world. Later in chapter nine, which we didn't read verse 11, God talks about a coming day, which is this metaphorical idea of the coming of salvation. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. Now, remember that Amos was written during the exile when King David was long dead and his kingdom had been in the hands of successive foreign powers, likely at this point for centuries. And God says, nonetheless, I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. I will rebuild it as it used to be. The days are coming, verse 13, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the one who plows and the planter by the one treading grapes. What's going on here is that there's 
there's so much to the harvest that the planter and the reaper are working at the same time. God's promise begins to take on a shape that will far exceed anyone's expectations. In verse 14, I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine and will make gardens and eat their fruit. These are the words of a massive cosmic restoration, not just Israel coming back to home. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is where we begin to see that the boundaries of this promised restoration exceed the boundaries of Israel. God makes bigger and bigger successive promises that seem to have worldwide implications. Verse 16, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. That is everything that David's kingdom was meant to stand for and to do. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. Why? Verse 17, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord. The benefits and blessings of God's love to Israel were meant to overflow the banks of Israel. They're meant to flow into the nations to bring God's blessings to them and to gather them into spiritual Israel. In Acts 15, the apostles are meeting to consider a dispute about the Gentiles being included in God's purposes for the world. And James quotes this last part of Amos to support Peter's contention that in Jesus, the the church is to carry on Israel's calling, bringing the blessings of God to the ends of the earth and to those that Israel was particularly tasked with, the poor and the needy and the outcast. But as Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And that's exactly what Israel was trying to do. It was trying to have the blessings of God, the protection of God, the care of God, without the challenges of God, without the calling of God without pursuing justice on God's behalf. But you can't have both. God says to be in his kingdom, to be in his nation of Israel, to be in his church, you have a calling. You have a calling to the ends of the earth to bring the blessings of God, to bring the gospel to bear upon the neighborhoods and the workplaces and the cities of the world. And that remains in town's calling. Remarkably, thankfully, with all the words of judgment that are in this passage, Jesus comes not to bring judgment. He says emphatically that he doesn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. He comes not to bring judgment upon the world, but instead to bear 
its judgment. The church aligned with his purposes goes into the world, not to bring judgment upon it, but to bear its burdens. Not using religion to mask a selfish heart, but to give care to the poor and the needy in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we, we pray that you would make us to be a people who have your concerns at heart. I pray that as we go about our institutional duties, as we go about our religious worship, as we partake of the elements, as we do all of those things that are right for your church and your people to do, I pray that we would not use them as leverage over you or leverage over other people, not to build our own resume, but Father, to drive us deeper into the needs of the gospel and the needs of your world. And I pray that as you continue to guide in town, that you would hold on to us. As Jessica prayed, just as a parent holds on to the hand of their child, that we would sense that you are with us, that you are carrying us into this new season, whatever that might look like. And I pray that you would, against all expectations against what we can see to be uh, expected and possible right now. I pray that you would use your church in mighty ways in this community, that you would make us to be more nimble, more able to carry out your tasks, more full of life and full of the kinds of people that you want to bring to faith and bring to Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.